Hi, I'm Father Gregory Pine. And I'm Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And you're listening to the Catholic Classics Podcast, where we seek to grow our interior lives by learning from the Church's greatest saints and teachers. Each season, we'll read through a great work, explain its spiritual principles, and help you apply its timeless wisdom to your life. The Catholic Classics Podcast is brought to you by Ascension. This season, we are reading Ascension's edition of Confessions by St. Augustine. A few reminders before we get started. To download the reading plan for Confessions, visit ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics or text CONFESSIONS to 33777. Click follow or subscribe in your podcast app for daily notifications. This is Day 9. Today we'll be reading Book 3, Chapters 5-7 through in the Ascension edition of the book. We wanted to take this opportunity to thank everyone who has helped support this podcast financially. Your support is so appreciated and helps us to reach as many people as possible. And if you haven't already, please consider supporting us at ascensionpress.com support. Before we get into the reading, a quick look at what we're covering today. So here we are, book three, cruising through the latter teenage years of Augustine's life, uh, his time in Carthage. And it's in Carthage, as we mentioned in our bonus introduction episode that um, St. Augustine picks up Cicero, and he begins to read Cicero, and he also looks at the scriptures and compares the two, um, finding the scriptures lacking in comparison. And it's at this time that he first turns to the Manichaeans, this dualist Gnostic sect, and the reason for that, we're going to cover some of it, but the reason is that the Manichaeans, according to Augustine, at least appear to answer some of the questions or some of the criticisms or the doubts he has about the scriptures. God, the created world, and evil. So we'll talk about all of that, and uh, this kind of sets the stage a bit for what's to come, because Augustine is a manichae for almost a decade, so we're, we're diving in here. So before we get to some uh, further commentary, let's start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Chapter 5 I then resolved to bend my mind to sacred scripture, so that I might see what it was like. But behold, I saw something that is not understood by the proud, nor laid open to children, lowly at the start, yet lofty and veiled with mysteries. And I was not in such a state that I could enter into or stoop my neck to follow its steps. For when I turned to those scriptures, I was not then as I am now. Rather, to my eyes, they were unworthy of comparison to the stateliness of Cicero, for my swelling pride shrank back from their lowliness, nor could my sharp wit pierce into them yet they would grow in him who was small. However, I scorned the idea of being little, and swollen with pride, took myself to be someone great. Chapter 6 Therefore I fell among men who were proudly raving, exceedingly carnal, and all too talkative, in whose mouths were the snares of the devil, using syllables of your holy name as traps mixed into their speech, as well as the names of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, the Paraclete, our Comforter. They did not fail to speak these names, though only as sounds and noise made by their tongues, for their hearts were devoid of truth. Yet they cried out, Truth, Truth and spoke much about it to me. But it was not in them, 
And they spoke falsehood, not only about you, who truly are truth, but even about the elements that made up the bodily world, your creatures. And indeed, for love of you, my Father, who are supremely good in the beauty of all things beautiful, I should have passed by even those philosophers who spoke truth concerning them. O truth, truth, how inwardly did even then the marrow of my soul pant for you, when they often and variously, and in many tomes, echoed words about you to me, though it was but an echo. And here I was, hungering for you, and they served these dishes to me, giving me in place of you the sun and moon, beautiful works made by you, though still your works, not yourself, nor even your first works. For your spiritual works are before these bodily ones, even if they be celestial and luminous. But I hungered and thirsted, not even for those first works of yours, but instead for you yourself, the truth in whom there is no variation or shadow of change." Yet upon those dishes they still set before me glittering and deceptive fantasies which by our eyes deceive our mind. In comparison with them, it would have been better to love the sun, which is at least real to our sight. Yet because I thought that they were you, I fed upon them, though not eagerly, for you did not therein taste as you truly are and were not these empty things. Nor was I nourished by them, rather was exhausted by them. Food in our dreams looks very much like the food we experience while awake, yet those who are asleep are not nourished by it, for they are asleep. But what they spoke of were not in any way like you, as you have now spoken to me, for they were bodily fantasies, false bodies, in comparison with which true bodies, whether heavenly or earthly, which we behold with our bodily sight, are far more certain. Indeed, such things the beasts and birds discern as well as we do, and they are more certain than we are in our own imaginings. And again, we have greater certainty when we imagine them than when we use them than to conjecture about vaster and infinite bodies that have no being. Such empty husks were what they fed me upon, and I was not fed. But you, my love, whom I seek, fainting so that I might become strong, you are neither those bodies that we see even though they be in heaven, nor those that we do not see, for you have created them and do not even count them among your most important works. How far then are you from those fantasies of mine, fantasies of bodies that have no being at all? In comparison with them, the images of bodies that actually exist are far more certain, and even more certain are bodies themselves, yet you are not those." No, nor are you the soul, which is the life of bodies. So then, the life of bodies is better and more certain than bodies themselves. But you are the life of souls, the life of lives, having life in yourself. And you do not change, O life of my soul. Where then were you for me? And how far from me? Truly I was straying far from you, barred from the very husks of the swine whom I fed with husks. For how much better are the fables of poets and grammarians than these snares? For verses, poems, and Medea flying in the air are more profitable in truth than the five elements spoken of by these men, elements that are variously disguised, answering to five dens of darkness, which have no being yet slay the believer. For I can turn verses and poems into physical food as a payment. And though I might sing of Medea flying, I did not maintain that she really did this. And though I heard it sung, I did not believe it. But I actually did believe in those matters spoken to me by the Manichaeans. Woe, woe, by the steps was I brought down to the depths of hell. 
toiling and burning for want of truth. Since I sought you, my God, to you I confess this, you who had mercy upon me, who still at that time I had not yet confessed. I sought you not according to the understanding of my mind, where you then will that I should excel even the beasts, but according to the senses of the flesh. But you were more deeply within me than my most inward depths, and higher than what was highest in me. I stumbled upon the bold woman, simple and knowing nothing, placed in the shadows by Solomon, sitting at the door of her house, calling to those who pass by. Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. She seduced me, for she found my soul dwelling abroad in the eye of my flesh, and ruminating on such food as I had devoured through it. Chapter 7 For other than this, I did not know true reality and was, as it were, through sharpness of wit, persuaded to assent to foolish deceivers when they asked me, What is the source of evil? Is God bound by bodily shape, having hair and nails? Should we judge men to be righteous if they had many wives at once, killed men, and sacrificed living creatures? And response, in my ignorance, I was greatly troubled, and while departing from the truth seemed in my own estimation to be moving toward it. For as yet I did not know that evil is nothing other than a privation of good until at last a thing altogether ceases to be. And how could I see this with a sight that is limited only to bodily realities and a mind limited to what I can imagine? And I did not know that God is spirit, not something having parts extended out in length and breadth with a being extended out in bulk. But every bulk is less in a part than it is in a whole. And if it is infinite, it must be less when it is considered in one part, in a given particular space, than when it is considered in its infinitude, meaning that it is not wholly everywhere as God, who is spirit, truly is. And I was altogether ignorant about what in us made us to be like unto God, that which in Scripture is rightly said to be in the image of God. Nor did I know what true inward righteousness, which judges not according to custom, but by the most just law of God Almighty, that law by which the ways of places and times have been set out, and accord with those times and places, itself remaining the same always and everywhere, not one thing in one place and another in another, according to which Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and David were righteous, as well as all of those commended by the mouth of God, though judged unrighteous by silly men, judging by men's own judgment, and measuring by their own petty habits, the moral habits of the whole human race, they are like a man standing in an armory, not knowing which kind of armor is to be put on what part of the body, thus covering his head with shin guards or seeking to wear a helmet as shoes, then complaining that they did not fit. Or they are like a man who, on a day when business was publicly stopped during the afternoon, would become angry at not being permitted to keep open his shop because he had done so in the morning. Or like someone who, in a given house, sees a servant take in hand something that the butler is not permitted to meddle with, or sees something permitted outdoors, though it is forbidden in the dining room, and then becomes angry that in one and the same house and family the same thing is not allowed everywhere and to all. Such is the outlook of those who are concerned when they hear that something was lawful for righteous men in the past, though it is not now, or that God, for certain time-bound reasons, commanded one thing of these people and another of those— with both obeying the same righteousness. But they see in one man on one day and in one house different things to be fitting for different members, and something that was formerly lawful no longer being so after a certain time, and one corner permitted or commanded, though in another rightly forbidden or punished. 
Is justice therefore varied and mutable? No, but the times over which it presides flow unevenly, precisely because they are temporal. However, men whose days are few upon earth take exception to such differences because they cannot, by their senses, harmonize the causes of things in former ages in other nations, which they had no experience of, with these which they have experienced in their own days, even though they submit to what they easily see to be fitting in one and the same body, day, or family for each member's season, part, and person. However, I neither knew nor observed these things at the time. They struck my sight on all sides, yet I did not see them. I composed verses in which I could not place every poetic foot everywhere, but rather differently in different meters, nor even in any one meter the one and the same foot in all places. Yet the very art by which I composed them did not have different principles for these different cases, but instead included them all in one. Still, I did not see how the righteous, that good and holy men obeyed far more excellently and sublimely itself, contained unitedly all those things which God commanded, varying in no part, although in various times it did not prescribe everything all at once, instead allotting and enjoining what was fitting for each. And in my blindness, I censured the holy fathers, not only for what they did at their own time as God commanded and inspired them, but also in the way that they were foretelling things to come, as God was revealing those things in them. All right. Book three, Carthage, Cicero, Scriptures, Manichaeans. It's like a soap opera. You know, it's, it, there's a lot of things going on here. Um, so let's let's kind of lay out the scene with Cicero and the Scriptures and St. Augustine's reaction to both and engagement with both, I guess, to put it in a a sort of simple and succinct way, as Augustine picks up Cicero and reads him, he quickly recognizes Cicero's great tact for language and syntax and rhetoric and his, his facility with language. And it's very attractive to him and draws Augustine to a consideration sort of of wisdom, of wanting to know, of of wanting to pursue wisdom. And at the same time, or at a closely chronologically linked, is Augustine's reading of the scriptures, which he finds in comparison to Cicero to be lacking, to be simplistic, to be, you know, not just up, not up to snuff as far as his expectations and desires go. So Father Gregory, we've kind of laid out the scene as it were, but what's, I guess, what's going on here with Augustine and Cicero and the scriptures? And yeah, let's, let's kind of flesh it out a little bit, dive into what he's saying. Yeah, we kind of touched on some of the main themes in the bonus episode that was uh, the introductory episode to book three. But I think one theme that merits more attention is the theme of wisdom. St. Augustine references the fact that it's the wisdom of the Hortentius which really impresses him and which animates him. And I'll actually return to that theme of wisdom later in the book as he's describing his kind of movements of mind and heart immediately before his conversion, um, saying like, you know, this pursuit of holy wisdom that was begun in me and reading the Hortentius at the age of 19, like here we are X number of years later, still on the doorstep of conversion, he says from the vantage of his converted self. So it's clear that, that what's at work here is a kind of call to wisdom. And in the Christian tradition, when we describe wisdom, we describe it in, you know, like according to different senses, or we might say there's a kind of analogy of wisdom. So there are different senses of wisdom that are partly alike and partly different. And I think that uh, St. Augustine is at this stage of his life very moved by philosophical wisdom, but he acknowledges at the outset, and we heard of that in the last episode, that he needs Christ to be present therein because, you know, 
uh, because of his upbringing, because of the fact that he's a catechumen, right? There's there's no real complete wisdom or perfect wisdom apart from Christ. So this sets up for us a kind of, I don't know, at least twofold sense of wisdom. And as he matures, right, there's going to be even further senses of wisdom. So we can identify this kind of, uh, what would you say, philosophical wisdom that's like about articulating reality and saying how reality holds together. And then a more theological sense of wisdom, which is a kind of reading of reality through Christ. And then beyond, I mean, not there's nothing beyond Christ, but um, deeper than just the surface level or the beginning of that appreciation is a kind of mystical sense of wisdom where you experience, you know, the the love of God and the love of neighbor in your very bones because you're kind of sympathizing with God's thoughts and loves in the matter. So I think that we see here St. Augustine on a kind of pilgrimage, as it were, of wisdom as he grows in his appreciation for it and his recognition and reception of it. Yeah, it's funny then as, as you talk about his, did you say journey of wisdom or his pursuit of wisdom or whatever, you know, however we describe it, that he begins with Cicero and then moves to the scriptures, which are the fullness of wisdom or contain the fullness of wisdom, you know, the living word of God, but takes a step back from the scriptures. They don't seem to satisfy sort of his parameters and his understanding of what wisdom looks like. And if we think back to what we've read about his upbringing and his edges, particularly his education, his schooling, um, we can see how he's influenced here by the way in which he was taught and encouraged to engage with speaking and writing and these sort of things that he almost ignores in some ways the content, you know, and it's it's much more about the, the delivery and the use of language that is appealing especially in, in Cicero at this point, appealing to St. Augustine, not that he ignores the content of scriptures, but the sort of wisdom in the simplicity of the scriptures is lost in, on him at this point in his life. So he he's not satisfied by what the scriptures have to present. And in that lack of satisfaction, um, he turns, he begins to turn his attention to places that might provide answers to the questions that he's asking. And he does so, as we mentioned at the top of the episode, by engaging with with the Manichees. And if you want to hear a bit about the Manichees a bit more, we talked about them in our in our introduction episode to this book, but we can talk about the Manichees and perhaps more why is it that St. Augustine looks to them as a source of wisdom in an in a incomplete way? Yeah, as we kind of move on uh, in the Confessions or as we progress through the Confessions, we'll come to, I think it's in Book 6, when St. Augustine describes the preaching of St. Ambrose and how St. Ambrose begins to break open the sacred scriptures for him or give him a new kind of refreshed, renewed desire for the wisdom contained therein. And the way that St. Ambrose does that is he says, well, not only does the scripture signify by the words, but given that their author is God himself, you know, they're inspired by the Holy Spirit, he can also use the very things therein, like the things described in the scriptures, to signify further things. So God has a kind of omnicompetence. That's a crass word. That's not the word that I would want to use, but here we go. I used it. Omnicompetence with respect to, you know, words and realities or words and things. And he orchestrates them such that all of it tells of his interior life and, you know, the creation that we try to navigate our way through in light of his interior life or in light of his divine nature. But in order to access that, you have to have faith um, because the scriptures don't just yield up, you know, all of their interior riches to anyone, you know, it's like pearls before swine. You have to approach them with a certain sympathy. You have to approach them uh, with a certain kind of like intellectual penetration. And that's afforded by faith because faith is a light, which permits us to see into the obscurities of the sacred page of our lives, of the mysteries of God. Um, that's not to say it's like a Gnostic wisdom, like a hidden wisdom that's only for special people or really smart people or people who do strange things on the weekends. 
No, but it's a gift that we have to receive, that we have to kind of bow our heads and enter under a low threshold of humility in order to find ourselves in the four courts, you know, the palace of heaven. So when it comes to the Manichees, they, they don't make such demands of their hearers. They say like, oh, well, we've got some clever responses. We've got some clever interpretations. And I think they're able to draw in people who have fallen away from the faith or have not yet found the faith or whomever else, uh, because there's a seeming or there's an apparent wisdom to their descriptions because they're able to account for certain things. But, you know, St. Augustine's going to be turned on by it for a time, but turned off for it when he begins to look closer. We're going to come back to this particular point in, in upcoming episodes and, and other books too, but one of those things for which the Manichees seem to have a sort of wisdom or answer to is this question of evil. And as we know that you know up to this point and as we continue, St. Augustine has been wrestling with this question of of sin and evil and duplicity and brokenness and that sort of thing. So, and and truth be told, the question of evil in the world and in our lives is is not a unique question to St. Augustine. We all deal with it in some way and, and try to understand. So, but it's in this these chapters that St. Augustine begins the sort of question of, well, what is evil? And according the, the Manichees, as we've talked about, they propose a sort of dualist understanding of the world, right? That there's the spiritual world that's good, it's incorporeal, it's not physical, and then there's the created physical world, or yeah, the physical world in which we live, and that therein lies evil in this sort of creation, which is the the classic dualist distinction. But as we say that, you know, that comes at odds to be at odds with the understanding of there being one God. And, and the goodness of creation. So he dives into the question of evil a little bit here. We're going to touch on it more as we continue, but maybe say a little bit about what's, you know, like set up the problem as it were, especially as he begins to to become more and more enmeshed in the Manichees. Yeah, we, we talked about it in the last book when he stole some pears, and then he tries to make sense of why he stole some pears, uh, and he can't make sense of why he stole some pears. Uh, and so this prompts a meditation on evil and its nature or lack of nature, as it were, that it's just this kind of mystery of iniquity. It's kind of this inky black into which you gaze, hoping that something will will gaze back, but there's nothing there to gaze back because what it is, what evil is, is a privation, to use the terminology of St. Augustine, which is to say it picks out what ought to be there but isn't, whether that's an order or whether that's an affirmation or whether that's, you know, like choosing one thing over another, regardless of which, it's it's not there and it ought to be there. And so when we try to inquire into its nature, we're going to come up empty because there's nothing there to inquire after. And so when the Manichees offer their solutions as to, you know, this is good and this is evil, and so you have these problems on account of the fact that everything is tuck, tuck, just such, he's going to find that initially attractive because it seems to make sense of his experience. But again, as he scratches the surface, he's going to find that there's nothing underneath. And when he's doing that there, you know, he mentions here in, in some of his writings, and again, we're just getting into his uh, relationship with the Manichaeans. So these themes are going to be coming back and these points are going to be coming back. So by way of kind of signposting for what to expect, a quick summary at the end of this episode. So Augustine um, begins to criticize, or one of the criticisms he he levies against the Manichaeans is that, as Father Gregory was describing, their attempts at a sort of wisdom of understanding or a dismissal of things, of true things, they, they create these elaborate mythologies for explanations of what things are and what things aren't. And we're going to encounter that as we go on. And then just to set up the, the scene a, a bit further, the Manichaeans criticize Catholicism and, and belief in in the true faith, one of the, uh, 
first and foremost, their their big linchpin for them is is this question of evil. So this isn't going to be the last time we hear of it. And then this raises questions about you know the nature of God, of who is God? Is he creator of evil? Is he not? What is he? And then also with respect to creation uh, and God creating questions of creation in itself, and especially in the latter books of the Confessions, St. Augustine spends a lot of time on the book of Genesis and creation, and all of these will come back up. So we've at least encountered now the Manichees on Augustine's journey. We've kind of set up the scene of what he's going to be dealing with, questions that he's asking, questions that are not wholly unrelatable even for us uh, centuries and centuries later. And uh, we're, as we continue to turn the pages, continue to listen to the podcast, we're going we're gonna to dive into all of this a bit more. So stay tuned, stay with us, join us next time. And uh, know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us and we'll catch you next time on Catholic Classics. Thank you.